Let's continue in our series that we've started several weeks ago called Goodbye God. And the reason we initiated this series was to address an article that came out in March by the Barna Research Group. And it was the research group's article that caught my attention. And in big headlines it said, One out of four Americans consider themselves either an atheist or an agnostic. Now what occurred as I read further on into the article, I found that two-thirds of those individuals at one time identified themselves with Christianity. But they had moved away from Christianity and no longer considered themselves Christians and now would identify themselves, if asked, as an agnostic, one who does not know if God exists, or one who believes God exists, but he is unknowable, to an atheist who has flat out rejected any notion of God whatsoever. And in exploring the reasons why these people moved away, the article concluded that there were three significant reasons why these people moved from their identity of being Christians to atheists or agnostics. The first one is that these people felt that they could no longer trust the Bible to be the Word of God. And we addressed that in the first three messages. And we demonstrated that the Word of God is historic. There is significant evidence behind it. And there is supernatural influence within it. The second objection is the objection that we are currently dealing with together. And that is their understanding of church. They no longer trust the church. They no longer see the necessity for going to church. So in these series of messages, we've entitled them, Why Go to Church? And in this one, it is our fourth installment of The Problem is within the church. Why are so many people leaving and walking away from church attendance? Well, there are many reasons why. But I want to deal with the four that were stated in the article, and I'd like to read them to you because they will be the foundation of why we are answering the question in the manner that we are. These individuals that have walked away have been categorized as now being skeptics. One who doubts or questions all accepted opinions. Based upon their personal experience or their perception of church, they now no longer feel that they can trust the Bible or trust the church. And their objections to the church are as follows. Most skeptics think of Christian churches as, and I'm reading directly from the article, groups of people who share a common physical space and have some common religious views, but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing ways. Secondly, their understanding of a church is are organizations that add little, if any, value to their community. Their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in the community. And number three, organizations that stand for the wrong things, such as wars, preventing gay marriage and women's freedoms to control her own body, 
sexual and physical violence perpetrated on people by religious authority figures mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. And number four, led by people who have not earned the position of influence by proving their love for humankind and thus not deserving of trust. This was the conclusion that they came to based on these individuals' experience and perception of the church. So to address this, I felt it necessary that we answer some preliminary questions first. For example, what is the church? Discovering that ten people, if you were to ask them what is the purpose of the church, you would get ten different answers. And we discovered that the Bible describes the church as God's people, God's body, God's building, God's bride, and God's family. But it's not only necessary that we know what the church is, but we also have to be fully aware of what the purpose of the church is. Because as one wrote in his book, he believes that people have all kinds of ideas about churches and about what makes churches and why churches should exist. If we are to survey people in churches and ask them what is the main purpose of church or why does the church exist, sadly, we would most likely get the wrong answers. So we answered that question. What is the purpose of the church? The reason for which something exists or is done? And we discovered that there was a threefold purpose. The purpose of the church was for the exaltation of God, the edification of the saints, and the evangelization of the world. This is the purpose of the church. And after discovering what is the church and what is the purpose of the church, we then began to look at some of the problems that lie behind these objections. Because I think that if we are honest with ourselves, that the only way that we can go about changing a perception or an experience of an individual is by changing the perception or the experience altogether. I'll clarify what I mean by that in just a moment. But last week we demonstrated that since a wide vast of people do not know what the church is or what the purpose of the church is, it left a gap to be filled in subjectively by the individual. And that gap allowed for reinvention or revisionism. We're no longer looking at the biblical definition of church or the biblical purpose of the church. We now have the ability to reinvent ourselves or to create revisionism that allows us to be something that we were never meant to be. And we went through that last week. Describing and showing how the church in that reinvention of itself, and I know that you've seen this on literature, on websites, Such and such a church, come join us. We do church in a brand new way. Was there something wrong with the old way? Or the one I like is, (laughs) such and such a church, we are not like the church of your parents. What does that mean? (laughs) Trying to do things in a new way. Trying to reinvent or In the wake of the lack of our knowledge of history, we revise things to create something that it was never meant to be. 
And we discovered last time that the church today in America has been built on five different foundations apart from Christ. The first of those foundations, many churches have built themselves on entertainment, moving a person to a moment, a ministry moment that is nothing more than an emotional experience. Number two, the church built on a corporate business plan. Churches then have the fastest assumption of market share in their area, meaning that they're not winning new people to Jesus Christ. They're simply stealing people from other churches to create a vast or a larger number. Number three, a church built on the world. And their motto may be something like this, we must be like the world to reach the world. That's inherently dangerous. And number four, the church built on social justice many discovering that it's easier to rally people to a cause than to Christ. Or the church built on tradition. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way they've always done it before that. Well, where did it start from? I don't find those traditions in the Bible. I don't know, but this is the way we've always done it. And what is allowed for this reinvention is, again, the fact that people don't know what the church is and what the purpose of the church is. It even goes down to the teaching. Moving away from healthy biblical teaching to a steady diet of topical teachings, and those topics are usually consolidated, and they usually are a uh, a plethora of the pastor's favorites. They emphasize method. They give methodology rather than by means pointing people back to the ability of the Holy Spirit to allow the Word of God to work in them and the Holy Spirit to take that Word and to work in them and to change them from the inside out. That's what we looked at last week. Today we move to our next issue. And if we look at the objections of these individuals carefully, because that is the purpose of the series, we want to equip you to be able to go back to your skeptical friends and to engage with them and to discuss these things with them that they may have a new experience or a new perception of what the church actually is. Because that's really the goal here, isn't it? How do you overcome someone's personal experience in any given situation? How do you change a person's perspective that they have gained over maybe a period of years concerning any particular subject? That's the question that we wrestle with here. How do you change someone's mind when their perception and their experiences have told them X? And being as pragmatic as we are in our society, X has become the truth. This is my truth. This is my experience. This is my perception. And so if an individual came to you and said, my perception and experience of the church is that groups of people, they just simply come together in the same physical space. And they have some common religious views, but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing ways. Or they say to you, I don't understand the church. My perception and experience is that the church adds little value to any community except when it reaches out to the needy. Or they'll say something like, but the church is led by people who have not earned the right to have that position. And they have violated the trust of many. And therefore, why should I trust the church? Now, what would you say in those regards? That's a good question. 
Now, the very first thing that you might be tempted to say is, well, you haven't come to our church. I mean, I don't know what you experienced over there, but you haven't come to our church. Our music is awesome. The pastor is the best. Wow, thank you. Whoever just said that, I love them. Okay. That's what we'd be, we'd be inclined to do, wouldn't it be? You know, you haven't come to our church, but all we're doing is we're trying to re- replace a, a, a perspective or an experience with another one, but we're really not addressing the issue. Think about that with me for a moment. As I looked at these objections, I found that three out of the four have to do with the perception and the experience with one of the two components of a local body of a church. It has to do either with the portion of the local body which is known as the leadership or the portion of the church that is known as the laity. Because I really believe that that is the two components to a healthy local church, leadership and laity. Now I have to be very careful because I don't want anyone to think that by designating two different groups that we are saying that any one group is better than the other. But both are necessary in the design in which God has created the church to be, and I'll explain that more in just a minute. Either they're having difficulty with the laity or they're having difficulty with the leadership. The church was designed by Christ It is clear, that design is clearly laid out for us in the New Testament. And we simply need to adopt His architecture, His design, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, implement it. Does that make sense? What I need to know and to understand the church, I can find in the Word of God. The study of the church in theological terms is called ecclesiology. And one defined that word as such. Ecclesiology seeks to set forth the nature and the function of the church. Notice how it proceeds. It also investigates issues such as the mission, the ministry, and the structure of the church, as well as its role in the overall plan of God. So there is a structure that God has created. It starts with Him, then the leaders that he has appointed, the elders of that church, and then the laity. Let me read some passages for you to help you see that particular structure. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. As Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, that is Christ. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I love that word. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ. Okay, we're all on the same page with that. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of this church. But to tend to the people of God, He has appointed people to be overseers, elders within the church. As Ephesians 4, 11-16 states, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the body joined together and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow as it builds itself up in love. So I have been appointed as your pastor... The elders of this church have been appointed by God to equip you to become mature Christians to fulfill the work that Christ has for you to do within the body. That's my job. I see my job very simply. If I, I, I see it, if I were to create a job description, I think I would boil it down to this for myself. My job is to feed you and to love you. That's my job. And when necessary, maybe discipline. When necessary. And only through the grace of God and love. As we come to the laity, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself, Paul writes. Or Hebrews 3.17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, and those who are over your soul, I should add, uh, will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this is the hierarchy. God, the elders, the leaders, I should say, and the laity. That's the structure of the church. These individuals have had trouble with one or the two components, that is either the leadership or the laity, based upon their objections. Reading their objections, their perceptions, their experiences have been concluded by their interaction with the leadership or the laity. This morning I would like to take some time to explore these two portions of the church, to see if we can identify how they have been affected by the revisionism and reinvention that we spoke about last week, and therefore have led to the issues listed above that our skeptical friends may have concerning the church. All throughout the Gospels, if you love reading the Gospels, you're like me. I love reading the Gospels. And I find that there is a contrast that is in every single one of the Gospels 
concerning leadership. We're going to deal with leadership first. And I'm going to go back to the Gospels, and I'm going to show you and demonstrate just very quickly this morning that there's this contrast that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that contrast is as black and white as you could possibly get. In this corner, throughout the Gospels, we have our notorious religious leaders known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. In this corner, we have a young man from Nazareth who is only 30-some years old. He is by himself with 12 blue-collar workers who came out of the fishing industry. And each of them are displaying a type of leadership. And I will tell you that leaders who have gotten themselves into trouble often have gravitated to the characteristics of the religious leaders of the days of Christ and have neglected the characteristics of the leadership of Jesus Christ. The reason I say this is because the apostles after Christ saw Christ as their example, good example to have, in almost every aspect of life, including their leadership. When it came to John or Peter and Paul, Jude, James, Christ was always their role model. In fact, Paul went as far as to say, imitate me as I, what? Imitate Christ. That was their role model. And I want to contrast those two types of leadership for you this morning and to show you how often leadership strays from the example of Christ and adopts the example of the religious leaders of that day. Now that you're aware of that contrast, I hope you'll explore it for yourself because it's awful telling. The religious leaders, if I may sum it up this way, and again, I'm profiling them very, very quickly. This is what they were known for. Corruption, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, elitism, blind guides, intellectualism, the wisdom of that day, if I may say. They relished in their celebrity status, which led to nothing more than pride. They were controlling and demanding of the people, but yet they were indifferent to the needs of the people. That sums up for me very quickly a profile of the religious leaders based on the examples of the New Testament. You might find Matthew 23 very interesting for your personal reading. In Matthew 23, there are seven woes that Jesus lays against the religious Pharisees, and they are condemning. It is the harshest portion of Scripture that we have that Jesus has engaged himself within. If we contrast that, the corruption... When Jesus came into the courtyard and he found the money changers there, what did he do? Uh, He flipped out, literally. (laughs) Flipping over tables. Cleansing the courtyard with a whip. Because those money changers 
at the behest of the religious leaders, were scamming the people. Let me tell you how they were doing it, just for an example. People would come from all over the area during certain feasts of Israel, and they would bring with them their animal and so often carry that animal for hundreds of miles. And when they got to Jerusalem, those priests who were in charge of inspecting the animal to see if it was prepared and proper for sacrifice, the animal must be perfect, without spot nor blemish. The priests then would be instructed by the high priests and the Pharisees to reject every animal and require that person who has traveled so long to go buy one from us at an exorbitant amount of money. Then they took the animal that was brought by that individual, maybe for 50, 25, 30 miles, however long, take it in the back, give it to someone else, and take it back out to the money changers to have them sell it to the next guy. This was the corruption of the religious leaders. What about the hypocrisy that is found in the trial of Jesus Christ? They discarded and uh, every single rule of the Old Testament in the way that a person should be tried. What about the manner in which their self-righteousness led them to elitism and they were no longer approachable by the people, but the people scattered from in front of them? There was an intellectualism that was created, the wisdom of the day that was recorded in works like the Talmud and the Mishnah, which were the books that the Jewish people lived by that were so far from an accurate interpretation of God's uh, word that the people were lost. And Jesus came to correct that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he often said, you've heard this, but I say this. He was correcting the misunderstandings through the Talmud and the Mishnah. They relish in their celebrity status. They love getting the chief seats wherever they went. They had valet parking for their donkeys wherever they went. They were escorted into the best tables at every restaurant in Jerusalem. They rubbed shoulders with kings and with overseers from Rome. Their celebrity status allowed and fed into their pride and their elitism. They demanded the people follow them, respect them, be just because they said so. God desired that authority over his people, but the people no longer respected that position. And they said, regardless of that fact, we want you to do what we tell you to do and not question us. An ordinary individual unstudied in the law could not question a Pharisee. They were controlling. They were indifferent. As Jesus called them, blind guides. You don't enter into the kingdom of heaven yourself and no one who follows you does either. You go out and win one polacetite, they say, and then he's on his way to hell faster than you are. This is the style of leadership. And what I want to tell you is that the reinvention of the church has allowed for the adoption of some of those bad characteristics of the religious leader and people have suffered under the weight of such things. If it's a church driven by entertainment, the pastors often become celebrities, right? If it's a church driven by business practices, the pastors often become CEO and it's all about money. And often 
that prosperity moves them to corruption. There's an elitism that's found once again because an individual has two letters before his name, D-R dot, but they're demanded. You must listen to me. So we have allowed for these things to creep in, and I think that you can parallel these things with some of the things that we are experiencing today, the corruption of leadership, the hypocrisy that we see in leadership, the self-righteousness, the elitism, the intellectualism, because they have um, mastered the wisdom of this world rather than the wisdom of God. They relish in their celebrity status. They're controlling, and they're, but they're certainly indifferent to the needs of the people. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years of not being challenged by anybody or confronted by a prophet of any kind, what breaks forth on the scene is this man from Nazareth. And he is stirring it up. And people are reacting to him like never before. Thousands of people following him from one place to another. And in the wake of that, gaining the religious leader's attention and saying, what the heck is going on? We can't get the people to respond to us like that. What is about, what's all about him? If we profile the characteristic of Jesus' style of leadership, it can be summed up in one word, servant. He was perfect without any corruption, purely sincere and righteous in every way. He was completely approachable by anyone, from children to Gentiles to Roman soldiers to religious leaders. It didn't matter. Tax collectors, prostitutes those who were deemed sinners of the society. There was no falsehood in him at all, for he being God could not lie. The wisdom that he expounded was not the wisdom of the world or the, the wisdom of the Pharisees, but it was the wisdom of God that fell from his lips. He came in under the banner of humility from his birth on his birth in a barn in Bethlehem to being amongst those in Nazareth, then in his ministry not having a place to lay his own head. No real mention of personal belongings or any kind of personal wealth. He says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And instead of being indifferent and unapproachable. He was approachable. And instead of demanding that people follow him in a controlling manner and manipulation, he did not drive the people as the Pharisees and the religious leaders did. He led them as a shepherd. And he was not indifferent to their needs to their cares, to their troubles, to their difficulties, but over and over filled with compassion towards them. And it made a difference. He stood out. There was something about him that everybody recognized and saw but could not put their finger upon it. Listen to these words. At the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finished, and the reaction of the crowd was as follows. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, that is the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount, 
chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. The crowds were astonished, amazed, bewildered at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So fascinating to me. What is this authority that Jesus has? How is he able to teach in the manner that he has? I cannot understand what God desires of me. How is this possible? Our scribes don't have this kind of authority, but he does. This carpenter from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he goes on, they go on to state in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. Listen to these words with me. When they were considering who Christ was, they said this. When they heard these words, again after Jesus' teaching, some of the people said, This really is the prophet, speaking of the prophet that Moses anticipated and predicted would come. In verse 41, others said that this is the Christ. But some then said in response to that, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the the Christ would come from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And I think that's where Jesus came from. So there was a division among the people over him. They didn't get it, but they knew something was different. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him with you? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. He's different. There's something up with this guy. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the of the Pharisees believed in him? Have we validated his ministry? What audacity! What audacity that they would require to validate God's ministry to his people. But that's the pride that they found himself in, that we as believers often find ourselves in. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge any man without first giving him a hearing and a learning of what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It's interesting that Nicodemus started to see and understand. There's something different here. As he came to Jesus in John 3, he acknowledged that we haven't seen anything like this before. This isn't like before. Something's different here. Came to him at night. Most likely because he didn't want to be seen. But he had to know. And he had to warn the Lord. There was something different about this man. I tell you today that leadership is going to adopt one or two of the position, either of the positions. They're either going to be pharisaical in their leadership or they're going to emulate Christ. And we here at Calvary Chapel believe that leadership is done under the umbrella of servanthood. And that Jesus Christ is our example. And hopefully we will be approachable. Hopefully we will be sincere, a true righteousness. Hopefully we will um, example for you a humble servanthood. Hopefully you'll feel like you are cared for and well-shepherded. Hopefully you'll feel that the leadership of this church is compassionate towards your needs and understands and wants and desires to help you. And that we will not 
tolerate corruption. If I may take a moment now to address something that I think is very important and personal to many here. Over the last 10 years or so, I have been saddened by the number of people who have come to our church, leaving their previous church behind because of issues of some sort or another, some even using the word abuse at the hand of church leaders. I was in the church for years and I couldn't believe when I discovered how corrupt the leadership actually was. I put my trust in these men to take care of my need, myself and my family, and to teach us the Word of God and to watch over and to shepherd us, and they broke that trust. Each Sunday, the leaders would get up there and talk about uh, purity and holiness, and then we discover moral failures one right after another, from sex scandals to pornography. How many people are in, are in churches today where the pastor is driving them rather than leading them by example? Or the gross hypocrisy that is discovered in the lives and the characteristics of the leadership? Or they become unapproachable because of their celebrity status? I have even heard some refer to the pastors of their very large churches as, I could never talk to him, he's the Pope. Is this what Jesus really had in mind? Or is this a byproduct of American reinvention? Because when I read the life of Jesus, when I see the example led by the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, James, etc., they adopted the leadership style of Jesus Christ. Many have said this to me. We went to that church and we simply felt like a means to an end. When the church needed money, we were the means to the end. When the church needed volunteers to fulfill one of their agendas, we were a means to the end. What is the difference between that and the Pharaoh over the slaves of Egypt fulfilling their purposes on the backs of the people? What happened? I argue from the point that what has happened is that the reinvention of the church has allowed for these characteristics to reemerge and to sustain themselves, and therefore people have had horrible experiences with leadership. Now I will say that though many of those situations were justifiable, meaning that they actually happened, people were at the hands of bad leadership, I will say that I have discovered since that that some who have claimed these exact same things actually left very healthy churches, but they use this as an excuse to justify the fact that they didn't get their way. They wanted something. The leadership said no in a biblical fashion. I'm abused. Really. The victim mentality has permeated almost every aspect of our society. Well, the leadership, they approached me on an issue that was very sensitive. Yeah, you being in an adulterous relationship is a very sensitive issue, and the leadership needed to do that according to biblical mandate. So we've dealt with the leaders very quickly. I commit to you that each and every one of us here at Calvary Chapel believes that Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of of leadership. And hopefully, we emulate that through our own lives to the best of our ability.
But the other issues that they raised had to do with the congregation. For example, when they say groups of people who share a common physical space but have shared some common religious views but are not personally connected with each other in any meaningful or life-changing way, that's a laity issue. Or, an organization that adds little, if any, value to their communities, their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in their community. That's a laity issue. We've dealt with the leadership issue, which was their last one, led by people who do have not earned their position of influence by proving their love for humankind, and thus are not deserving of trust. But what about these other two? Today in America, again because of reinvention, the laity has lost their understanding of why they come to church. Let's begin by this. Why did you come to church today? Was it simply because you wanted me to see you so I would put a gold star on your chart saying they made it again? Praise the Lord. Was it because you wanted to get something out of your experience here today? What was the purpose of you coming to church today? Many have not asked asked themselves that question. But I say to you that many who come to church with the wrong mindset and therefore they set up for themselves a wrong expectation of their experience of church. If you come in expecting something and do not receive it, you're going to be let down and no longer satisfied. Listen to one person, and I love what he wrote here because I think he nailed it right on the head. Is it possible that the laity of the church has no longer come to church to be communers with God through the worship and the teaching of the Word of God? Or have they come simply to be consumers? One wrote, In my conversation with many pastors from around the country, I've noticed that a new word has entered the church lingo. Consumer. Experts are telling us that people no longer attend a fellowship of believers to commune with God. They come to consume. And in order to thrive, churches are going to have to adapt to the needs of their spiritual consumption. This would... Uh, support the understanding that 89% of people have when they come to church. The church is here, if you remember the quote, to fulfill my needs and my family's needs. That certainly would speak of what? Consumption. We are a consumer nation, aren't we? We consume. It doesn't matter what it is. That's what we do. Our economy is based upon it. Our thinking is based upon it. Our identity is based upon it. We are consumers. So many are coming to church simply to see what I can get. See how the church can meet my needs and my family's needs. And if that's not met, then I'm not satisfied. How many times have you ever heard a person use this term? They've come to church, and as you were leaving, you said, Hey, what did you think of that service today? Quote-unquote, I really didn't get anything out of it, end quote. You have to ask what their mindset was when they first arrived. I don't know about you, but even the worst teacher or pastor, one who just doesn't have any teaching gifts whatsoever, if he begins to read the Word of God, I can get something out of it. Because it's the Word of God. Not because of him, but... Uh, in spite of him. But think of that mentality for a moment. I, I really didn't get anything out of it. What did you come for? 
What was your presupposed supposition? Listen to what he went on to say. When you label someone a consumer, you're zeroing in on the thing, on one thing, and that is consumption. That means it's all about the individual's appetite. What goes down the hatch? And churches that adopt a consumer-oriented approach in order to bring in a crowd often look to marketing experts to help them find out what consumers are hungry for. Doesn't that sound like everything that's going on in the church? Why is it that you can attend a church for one year and you can go through five topic, or teaching topics and then all of a sudden it repeats from the first one over again? Because they're giving what people want rather than what people need. People come to church looking to get rather than to give. We have been told that, we want, that individuals who have come here are looking for a church where they can get the most bang for their buck. They're looking for a church that helps them feel good. The most vital church experiences that I have ever had is not in the moments that I left feeling good, but in the moments that I left feeling convicted that has led me to repentance and into a closer, more realistic, righteous relationship with Jesus Christ. To fulfill their personal obligation, we've been told this a lot, I know I need to go to church so I'm here. And I'm just going to warm this seat And then I'm going to leave, but I fulfilled my personal obligation. And of course, as we have said, to have my family's needs met and my own, that is the purpose and why I'm here. Now notice something. The only way a consumer mentality can exist within a church is if they don't know what the purpose of the church is. If you know that the purpose of the church is the exaltation of God, the edification of the individual, and that edification comes through many different forms, It's not simply leaving feeling good. That's not what edification is. It's the true building up in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ that that will include conviction, discipline, so forth. But evangelization of the world. In those three principles, there's very little room for you. It's all about Him. Listen to this, if you will, and we're almost done. In Acts 2.42, the very first example that we had of the most basic demonstration of the gathering of the new believers in Jesus Christ. Notice how different this is after everything that we have discussed. Because I tell you that the experiences and the perceptions of those skeptics have been based on faulty leadership and faulty laity. But listen to this with me. Please read along if you have your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I just want to read these words in simplicity with you and ask you, does this look or resemble what we see today as the standard for church? As these individuals just simply and naturally went about their new faith in Jesus Christ. As you know, Peter and the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of chapter 2. They were criticized for coming out and praising God in the tongues of different nations. When asked, what does this all mean, Peter then gave a dynamic message. Beautiful. And 3,000 individuals were just pricked in the heart. 
and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And look what they did after that. I can just imagine Peter going back in off the rooftop to the other disciples. There's about 120 of them there. Listen, we have a problem. We now have to minister to 3,000. They're right out there. What do you think we should do? I could just say, what? What happened? We were just praying. And then this incredible wind came through and then everybody had fire on their head. Then we went out praising God in languages we didn't know. And then you give one message, you tell them simply explaining to them what has happened and 3,000 now are saved and we've got to do something with them. Remember how much trouble we had with the 5,000 and feeding them? I can just imagine all the things going through their heads, man. This is radical stuff. But listen to what they did. The disciples got together and had a marketing strategy with one another. <laughs> they began to hire consultants from outside firms and other religions. They looked at all the business practices and decided that the best method of dealing with these 3,000 was through entertainment. They decided that they could best respond to these people and their needs by first surveying them and finding out what their needs were. And then they discovered that the best thing we can do is be like them to reach them further. No. This simply. 3,000 people. And these 3,000 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that mean? He goes to explain. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Does that sound like a consumer mentality to you? And listen to this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking their bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Think of how simple it was. They followed the apostles and their teachings. As Peter taught, as James taught, as John taught, as Paul taught, they followed the teaching. They applied it in their lives. They fellowshiped with one another. They were breaking bread together, and it could mean communion or simply eating together. They were praying together as Christians Awe became upon every soul because God was doing great things through the hands of the apostles. And notice, we don't find any motivation from the apostles strong-arming people into giving. They simply began selling their excess possessions, things that they didn't really need, and they began to give to those who were in need. That's a change of heart. That's saying I'm different. That's saying it's not about me. 
It's all about him. To any who had need, there was no qualification. I'm sorry, you're of what denomination? Whoa, forget it. <laughs> Not given to you. Really? Any who were in need. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were meeting in the temple, 3,000. Now the religious leaders are over here. They're still doing their thing. And here are these carpenters, these fishermen over here with 3,000 people. They're teaching them. And this is going on in the temple. They're simply praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Incredible to me how far we have come. I end with this quote, if I may. And I speak this to all of us here today. In the long run, if we train people to be consumers instead of communers, we'll end up with customers instead of disciples. It might fill up the auditorium, but it'll never turn the world upside down for Christ. The problem is with the church. The problem is with the church. That's so true. From leadership to laity. Next week, we're going to wrap up this particular objection by addressing this third objection. And you may want to prepare yourselves for it. How do we reach a world, Pastor Eric, that believes that we stand for all the wrong things, such as wars? That's incredible. I've never instigated a war in my life. Preventing gay marriage and women's freedom to control their body. Sexual and physical violence perpetrated on people by religious authority figures. And mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. We're going to talk about that one individually next week. Because we are going to find confrontation over some of these points. But I believe as Christians we can do a much better job at tactfully approaching these subjects. And at the end, they still might disagree with us. At the end, they may hate us for our opinions. But in our moment of engagement, we have represented Christ properly. We have given them the information intact, truth, and in love. And what happens next, we leave into the hand of God. But next time we will address that objection. Because again, as you know, why don't we go to church? The problem is with the church.